Well, I'm going to speak to you from a passage in Hebrew Bible. Big surprise. <laughs> uh, tomorrow uh, is uh, a holiday, and Tuesday I begin a two-week class at Dallas Seminary in Dallas um, on the his history books of the Bible. Samuel through, um, oh my, it goes through Nehemiah, plus the poetry books, except for Psalms. Uh, this course, in two weeks' time, covers one quarter of the Bible. <laughs> and uh, because it covers so much, uh, those in infinite wisdom who make such decisions have decided to give this course two hours credit instead of three. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a very difficult course for our students. You should uh, think of them. They, they've got to read a lot and learn a lot. But for me, it's an absolute joy. And on Tuesday, we're going to be in 1 Samuel. And I thought, I want to get a head start because uh, it's going to take some time. I'll have them listen to the tape, huh? <laughs> so, oh, I'm kidding. But I'd like you to open to 1 Samuel in uh, the Old Testament. 1 Samuel. And uh, when we open to 1 Samuel, I'm going to take you into the story of one of the most remarkable women in the narrative of uh, these historical books in the Bible and her name is Hannah. I'm going to say, have uh, my message in uh, three parts of unequal length. And the first is going to be setting, the second is going to be story, and the third is going to be song. So first some words about the setting, and I can be fairly brief about that. You know, I have uh, another job, and in my other job, besides teaching at the seminary, I have opportunity to meet people uh, and talk with them one-on-one -on -one if they wish to do so. And uh, some of the people I talk with have no idea about anything in the Bible. I mean, they are utterly clueless. And um, so it's fun for me to answer questions about the Bible from people who know nothing. But here I am at Pine Valley Bible Church where you have such a wonderful Bible expositor as pastor and you have a number of people who've taught Scripture here over the years. So if I were to tell you that the uh, story of Hannah takes place in the time of the Judges, uh, that's the setting of the story, well, bells are ringing uh, through all of your um, wonderful heads, aren't they? Time of the Judges. You know what that means. It was a time between two great leaders in which there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You remember that uh, from the book of Judges. Uh, two great leaders, uh, the great Joshua, uh, who was the one who followed Moses and established the people in the land of Canaan, now becoming the land of Israel. And then the first king, whose name is Saul. And these two godly men, one who lived for God consistently to the end of his life, and the second who lived for God for a while and then ended very badly, but two godly men, uh, Joshua and Saul, and between them is Israel's dark ages. Um, more than 300 years of uh, people floundering about and um, being titillated by idolatry, drawn into acts of injustice and uh, desperate wickedness, and the carelessness and overt and horrible sin. And yet within that period of time uh, in which we read about um, um, turning from God and 
and then God bringing calamity and, and then people turning back to God and God bringing a deliverer and then coming back to peace uh, and the cycle then recurs. Within that period of time, there are some remarkable stories about godly people. And one of the things that I'm impressed with is in the period of Judges, that's when we have the story of Ruth and Naomi. And it's in the period of Judges that we have one of the best of the Judges, a woman, and her name is Deborah. And it's in the period of Judges that we have another woman of great faith, and her name is Hannah. I'm also impressed by the fact I can pick out three women who are notable in this period of time, because as you know, the Bible story often focuses on men and notable men, kings and prophets, and the women I've just mentioned are more or less nobodies. Um, who was Naomi? Um, she was uh, the wife of a man who turned from God, living in a small city, Bethlehem, a, a nobody who in God's eyes was a true somebody. And, and Deborah, uh, famous um, because of her faithfulness to God, but if she hadn't been who she was, we would have known nothing about her, and uh, yet she becomes one of the great heroes of the period of Judges. And then we come to this story in 1 Samuel, and uh, we read about a woman named Hannah. So just that little bit about setting. Now the story, be brief here as well. This is a quintessential family story. It's a real tearjerker, and it's set in the context of daily life in Bible times. Uh, in Bible times, uh, marriage was supposed to be, oh, this sounds very politically, doesn't it, between a man and a woman. <laughs> oh, that was an old-fashioned idea, wasn't it? <laughs> but sometimes a woman uh, would not be able to conceive a child. And in those days, and hear this, this is not the teaching of the Bible, it's certainly not the teaching of God, but in those days it was a universal belief that if a woman did not conceive a child, it was her fault. There was no idea then of uh, sperm studies and um, uh, all of those things that we know about today. And again, that's not the Bible teaching. It's not God's, it's not God's view. But the Hebrew people joined all their neighbors in that view. And the most common reason for divorce in Bible times was childlessness. If a man had been married to a woman for a number of years and there'd been no child, then all he had to do in Mesopotamian culture is to say to his wife, I divorce you. And she's out of the home. And she has no recourse. And only if she has a strong and loving father or a strong and loving brother does she even have a chance of survival in life because she's out of her husband's home. And her father is shamed. The ancient Near East is a part of Asia. That's why we call it the Near East. Um, this did not happen in Europe. It didn't happen in Kansas. And Asian people have the concept of face. You've heard of that, haven't you? And there's a loss of face to a father whose daughter is divorced by her husband because of inability 
to conceive a child, whether that's valid or not. By the way, that view is shared in African cultures as well. And the loss of face was so powerful that a father might not take his daughter back. And then who else is going to marry her when it's already believed, whether rightly or wrongly, that she's damaged goods? See what a sad thing that was? Now here you have a man, his name is Elkanah. And Elkanah is a godly man in the period of the Judges. His name is mentioned in the beginning of the story, chapter 1. There was a certain man of Ramatayim Tzophim, mountains of Ephraim. The town, that's the long name, is towns, the short name is Rama. It's just five miles north of Jerusalem. And he's a priest. And he's living in a city uh, where there are a number of priests. And uh, his name is Elkanah. And it's a wonderful name. The word El, at the beginning of his name, means God. And Kana is a word that means to create and to maintain. El Kana means God is the creator of all. So his name talks about the power of God, the beneficial, loving, concerned, relational power of God. And with his first wife, whom he dearly loves, he has no child. And her name in Hebrew is Hannah. We say in English, Hannah. We've softened the H. Hannah comes from the Hebrew word, verb and noun, that speaks of grace. So her parents, godly parents, in an ungodly time, gave her a name that speaks of the grace of God. So imagine the setting. Here's a man whose name speaks of the power of God, and his dear wife has a name that speaks of the grace of God, and in their marriage they have found neither to be true. They've experienced neither God's power nor His grace when it came to the issue of a child. And Elkanah, by the custom of the day, could have simply said to her, I divorce you. Well, in Bible culture, it was a little more than that. He had to actually write it out um, and give her a little parchment, uh, a little script that she could take to the city elders and ask if it seemed right to them. But childlessness, this is awful, was the most common reason for divorce. He couldn't divorce her. He loved her with all his being, but neither could he die an aged, childless man. So he married a second wife, and her name is Peninnah. And Peninnah is a wonderful name. It speaks of beauty. It's a term that speaks of corals. And she's a younger and a beautiful woman. And with her, he has a number of children, boys and girls. Now, uh, this isn't the way we do things in our culture, thank God. But in Bible times, this was not an unexpected um, experience. However, you can imagine what family dynamics were like. Here's the wife who's more loved and childless, 
And here's the young wife who is loved but has many children. And the young wife represents the older wife, uh, resents the older wife, and she flaunts her children against the barren uh, older wife and makes Hannah's life miserable. Now th this is a sad, sad story. And when I said tearjerker, I mean it. You should be so sad for Hannah, and you should be sad for Peninnah as well. She didn't ask to be in a situation like this, but there she was. This is a family in turmoil. And the thing about it is they're a godly family in an ungodly age. And they come down annually um, to worship God at the central shrine at the time, which was not in Jerusalem. That wasn't until the time of David, but was at Shiloh uh, up in the mountains. And they, they went to Shiloh. That's where the Holy Ark was. That's where an old and godly priest was. His name was Eli. And that's where his two sons were, Hophni and Phinehas, who were rotters, spiritual rotters. And they would go, this family, with other godly people to the worship of God at the shrine. And Hannah would go. She didn't need to go. The requirement in Torah is for men to go, but she would go because she's so devoted to God. In fact, the whole family went. And we read in verse 4 that when they came to give an offering, um, one of the offerings that was done in Bible times is called the shalom offering, the peace offering. And this is where an offering is made to God, but it isn't to deal with sin. It's actually an expression of joy. And in a time in which there's no refrigeration, uh, one only ate meat on a festive day. Because when you slaughtered a large animal, um, you had to eat it all. Uh, you can't put the rest in a locker, you know. It's going to go bad. So at the feast, some of the meat is given to the priests, and others is eaten, uh, the rest is eaten by the family and friends of the family. And it's called um, a peace offering because the imagery is they're sharing joy with God, who's the giver of every good and perfect gift. And Elkanah, who's a loving man, makes sure that all of his children by Peninnah and Peninnah, that they get an ample share of this festive meal. But he goes out of his way to honor his wife and he gives her a double portion, not that she needs to eat more, but just as a, as a demonstration of his love for her. And you read that, and then you think, what he meant for good just brings another dart of pain into her heart. She doesn't need more food, she needs a baby. And he looks at her, and in the most kindly way, by the way, the Bible says he loves her. We don't read that very often in the Bible. Uh, there's the assumption of love, but here's the statement. It's really remarkable. And then he, he goes out of his way and he says, isn't my love for you greater than if you had 10 sons, you know, 100 sons? Uh, am I not better to you than that? And 
she may have smiled through her tears, and she knew his love, but there's still a hole in her life that will not be filled. So everyone else is eating and drinking, and she must have left that extra portion behind, and she goes into uh, the proper area of the holy place where she's permitted to be. She's not going where only priests can be. And she prays to God, and she prays with such passion and such fervor that the aged Eli, who's some distance away and has poor eyesight, well, he's an old man. They haven't done LASIK surgeries yet. <laughs> and, and she's not speaking aloud. Her prayer is inaudible, which is unusual. And he thinks she's drunk out of her mind. And he, he's thinking very badly about this woman. He's thinking she's one of the, well, we hardly even have this expression. We have it for men. All right. Now, I shouldn't say this, because this is going to be on tape. <laughs> In the Bible, we have an expression that I call um, the, the Bible SOBs. Sons of Belial. You get that? And it has the same caustic, hurtful sense as that modern expression. Later in the chapter, too, we read that Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, are exactly that kind of person. Verse 12, chapter 1, I'm sorry, Verse 12, chapter 1, the, the sons of Eli, no, it's chapter 2, I was right, 2.12, the sons of Eli were corrupt. The Hebrew there is B'nai Belial. They were sons of Belial. The word Belial later becomes a term describing Satan. They were rotters. And Eli thinks the godly woman, Hannah, is a drunken sot that she's a bot Belial, a daughter of Belial. And, um, and that's in verse 16. She says, no, that's not what I am. I'm not a wicked woman. It's only because of my grief that I pray this way. And then the Spirit of God animated um, Eli the priest and he gave her the blessing of God that her prayer would be answered and the child for which she so dearly longed would be given. And uh, that's the story. Now we come to the song. There's more to the story, but now to the song, chapter 2. Chapter 2, the child has now been weaned. And um, the weaning of children in Bible times uh, was often about the age of three. So Hannah has had this child in her personal care for three years, and she's been building into the life of her toddler all that she knows about God, which is considerable. I mean, she is a great woman and a great mother and a great wife and a great spiritual figure. But she's made a vow to God that when that child is weaned, She's going to loan him, as it were, to the Lord. He's going to be in spiritual service 
from the time he's weaned until he dies. Um, priests didn't begin their work till they were 25 or 30, and it ended at 50. They had a capping time. Boy, I'm glad we don't have that today. I'd have been out of work for years. <laughs> but no one has ever put someone in God's service as a toddler, except for Hannah. And she also says she wants him to be a perpetual Nazir, um, one who lives all of his life, not just a few months of his life, as one especially devoted to God. That's the business about no razor on his, on his hair. Well, she brings the child to the priest, and then the Bible says, verse 1, chapter 2, she prayed. But actually what we have here is a psalm. Now she prayed the psalm, but this is a psalm. And there are three things I want to say about the psalm. First is this psalm is a very special type of psalm. It's what we call a psalm of declarative praise. We have two kinds of praise psalms in the Bible. One is descriptive praise, and the other is declarative. A psalm of descriptive praise is where someone praises God because he's good, or because he does good things, or because he's great, and he does great things. And it's apropos of nothing. It's just a recognition of who God is. They describe the person and work of God. We call those descriptive praise psalms. This is declarative. Declarative praise is where someone has prayed deeply and earnestly for something, and God has answered the prayer. And now the psalm comes as a direct response of God's answering that prayer. That's what this is. By content, this is not only a psalm of declarative praise, but it is a royal psalm. Look at the end of the psalm. Look at uh, verse 10, the last couplet. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The Hebrew word is his Messiah. This is a royal psalm. Because it's a royal psalm, it's a messianic psalm. This psalm has a trajectory that is almost incredible. It goes like a stone that is skipping on a pond with a good toss. But instead of the first splash being the larger, the largest, and the subsequent splashes being consecutively smaller, in this case, the first splash is the smallest, and they keep getting bigger. Turn to Psalm 113. We're coming back to 1 Samuel. Psalm 113 is a psalm that is built directly on the psalm of Hannah. Look at the end of, of uh, Psalm 113. We have these words. He raises the poor out of the dust, lifts the needy out of the ash heap, that he may seat him with princes, with the princes of his people. He grants the barren woman a home like the joyful mother of children. With a finger there, turn back to our psalm and um, look at the words that we have in this passage. It says, the, uh, verse uh, 5, the hungry have ceased to hunger, the barren is born seven, she who has many children has become feeble. She says um, that he um, raises the poor, makes rich, 
brings low, and let's see, he makes poor, makes rich, he brings low, lifts up. These words lead to Psalm 113. Now we'll turn to one more passage. It's the Psalm of Mary, the Magnificat, in Luke chapter 1. And when Mary, hearing the uh, blessing of God through Elizabeth, having already heard the blessing of God through the angel, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, and her words are built on this passage as well. He's shown strength as his arm. He scattered the proud, the imagination of their hearts. He's put down the mighty from their thrones, exalted the lowly. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his seed forever. The Psalm of Hannah has a trajectory that goes to Psalm 113 and to the Magnificat of Mary. This is marvelous. Here's another thing about this psalm. It goes far beyond the experience of Hannah herself. Look at the first verse back in 1 Samuel 2, 1. She says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. So surely uh, anyone reading this psalm is aware that here's a woman who's been consumed with sorrow, who is now overflowing with joy. Uh, of course she is. My heart rejoices, my horn is exalted, I smile, I rejoice in your salvation. The word rejoice is a fun word to me in the Bible. In this passage it's a verb, samach. There's a noun that comes from it, simcha. And I love the word simcha. When I was learning Hebrew vocabulary, I had a ready match for this word uh, because the first car my wife and I owned together, we bought shortly before we got married. And it was a simcha. You've never heard of that probably, but it was a small import from France and uh, made by French communists. <laughs> and um, it was an underpowered, cute little four-door sedan and uh, we bought this car because it was cheap. <laughs> and uh, shortly before we were married, Beverly went up to Washington State. We were living in Los Angeles at the time. And she's up in Washington with her family. And uh, I went out one morning, and the gas cap was missing from our car. There were three Simcas in the block where I lived at the time. I, I saw the other two guys later that day. I said, someone stole my gas cap. They stole ours too. So I don't know what the deal was with that. And I went to the Chrysler dealer, Chrysler was importing them at the time, and they said, well, there's a dock strike in New York. All parts are impounded on a dock. We can't get any replacement parts for you. I said, well, what shall I do? And a guy went into, um, uh, this was a, a serviceman. He went into the shop and he pulled out a dirty rag <laughs> And he stuffed it in the top, <laughs> you know, the, 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 where you put the gas deal in. And, uh, and I'm, I'm driving a mobile torch. <laughs> <laughs> Our windshield wiper had gone out as well. In L.A. that didn't matter in the summer, but I'm on my way to Washington where it rains, even in the summer. And uh, the generator wasn't working. 
So I drove up to Washington uh, with, uh, you know, the, the, the torch <laughs> and uh, choosing motels that were on a slant so I could push the car to get it started the next day. <laughs> and we were married 54 years ago, September the 3rd, in a little church in a smaller town called Concrete, Washington. Uh, we were cemented together. <laughs> And after the wedding, and in those days, not like today, it's not like today. Those days, the, the groom got out of his tux and he put on a brand new suit. And the bride didn't put on jeans, she put on a brand new uh, suit, or, you know, so, so, uh, her, her beautiful clothes, right? So Beverly had this beautiful tailored suit, I still remember this beautiful brown suit with a white uh, fluffy blouse and a uh, pillbox hat. She looked so darling. And we got in our car and it started to rain. <laughs> she had to roll down her window and we'd drive, the windshield wiper would go like this and stop and she'd have to flick it up. <laughs> so for 40 miles we're doing this with a cloth at the gas uh, deal, right? And um, choosing a place to uh, park our car so I could push it in the morning. <laughs> And when I think of the word simka, it just makes me laugh. <laughs> and that's what this word is in the Bible. It's a word of laughter. So, of course, the psalm is a psalm of laughter. But it's more than that. Actually, the language of the psalm doesn't fit the issue. A, a barren woman has had a baby. Wonderful. Thank God and go on with life. But the words of this psalm go beyond her. They go so far beyond her that this psalm becomes one of the great prophetic texts of anticipation of the coming of Savior Jesus and His rule on planet Earth in the glorious kingdom of God in the future to come. Look at what she says. Verse 2, No one is holy like Yahweh. And the word holy speaks of God's distancing from everything that He has made. Because He is unlike anything. He's incomparable to all things. By the word holy it means you can't even begin to imagine the barest iota of who God is. He is holy. And yet what she says about this holy God is He is our God. He is our rock. And she is related to the Holy One. And she speaks here like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40. She speaks here like Moses in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy. Hannah has become not just a, a wife and a new mother, but she is a prophet of God. And this is her great contribution to Hebrew Scripture. Did you know part of the Bible was written by women? This is a psalm of Hannah that's prophetic. And she speaks like Moses to the wicked who are out there somewhere. No longer be so proud and arrogant. Well, this isn't just a slap at Pinina. It goes far beyond the little jabs that she received from the rival wife. 
This goes to those who hate God and feel there's no reason for room for God in their lives. And she says, you need to know that God knows everything and he weighs everything and none will escape his judgment when that judgment is deserved and there's been no forgiveness. The bows of the mighty men are broken. Those who stumbled are girded with strength. This talks about divine reversal of expectations. Powerful armies will be broken by weaker armies of those who believe in God. And um, those who are weak will be strengthened. Those who are strong will be destroyed. Those who were full will become hungry. And those who were hungry will become full. And a barren woman will give birth to seven. And she who has many children will become feeble. Because God is able to reverse evil for good and exchange good for evil. And it's not just that, verse 6. She even has a view of the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Do you know that there are theologians that are everywhere who say that in Old Testament times there was no concept whatever of the resurrection of the body until the second century B.C. when Jewish people learned that idea from Greek people who brought their ideas uh, with the conquest of Alexander in 330. So there's nothing about resurrection of the body, we're told, in Hebrew Bible until Daniel chapter 12. And Daniel, of course, they say, is a fraudulent book, a false writing, written in the second century based on Greek ideas. That's what you're taught if you go to another school than Dallas Seminary or a school like Dallas Seminary which still believes in the inspiration of the Bible. Look at what this woman says. This woman who's just become a mother, she's a nobody in a no-name town and she's become a prophet of God and God speaks through her these words. It is he that raises, um, uh, makes, let's see, again, verse 6. It is he who takes life and makes life. He brings down to the grave and he brings up again. Do you know what she's describing? The resurrection of the body against all critical thought that's taught in most schools today. And she has it right. He makes poor and makes rich brings low, lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust, lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes. That's the words found in Psalm 113. And who is this God? Verse 8 at the end. The pillars of the earth are the Lord's. He set the world on them. He'll guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silent in darkness. This is final destiny that the one who controls the universe will bring the righteous into heaven and the wicked will be in utter darkness. And by strength no man will prevail. The adversaries of the Lord will be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Do you see the psalm has gone way beyond her joy in becoming a new mother? This is a prophetic psalm. This is like Psalm 97, Psalm 96, Psalm 110, Psalm 2. 
This is like the book of Revelation. She's describing the ultimate victory of God against all wickedness. She's describing the end of time judgment when the Lord will thunder against the wicked and bring judgment upon them and will make everything right. And look at the last couplet. This just sends chills down my, my body as I think about this. He will give strength to his king. When did she live? The period of the judges. There was no king yet. But she has a prophetic view that transcends her own time, takes her all the way to the end of time, and she sees, as it were, the coronation of King Jesus at the end of time in the millennial kingdom, ruling forever as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Where's Handel when we need him? He will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. And the word anointed is Messiah, Mashiach. And look at that word horn. This is just amazing. Did you see it in the first verse? She's talking about herself and she says, My heart rejoices. My horn is exalted in the Lord. And then she says, He will exalt the horn of his anointed. It's the word horn that ties this psalm together. When we have something at the beginning of a poem or a beautifully written prose uh, paragraph and, or unit, and it's at the end, we, call, we have a term for that. Well, we have to do something to justify high tuition. <laughs> so we call this inclusio. And, and it's a way that the word horn frames this psalm. And she says, my horn is exalted and he will exalt the horn of his anointed, of his Messiah. What's all this horn stuff? Is this Chaplain Bill at Dallas Seminary with his trumpet? You know his horn? Well, um, it might have referred to, I mean, it is an animal horn, and animal horns were blown when the animal's dead. Uh, that's the shofar. But she's speaking about the symbol of power of a bovine animal, a bull. So if you think about a feline, canine, the strength of those animals when it comes to uh, destruction is in their jaws, their powerful mandibles, and their sharp teeth that, that can shred and tear and destroy. But with a bull, the strength is in the horn. And you think about a, a raging bull, that's a pretty scary image. And here this woman, who's now given birth to a boy, talks about herself as having a horn like a wild bull. She says, I have this, I've been strengthened by God. And you can't see my horn, but don't mess with me. God has made me strong. And at the end of the passage, she says, Look at the Messiah. You're not going to see a growth out of his head. He doesn't, the horn is metaphorical. But it's a symbol of strength. And the strength is the power of God. She's saying, what God has done for me, magnified by the demands of Messiah, 
he will do for Messiah. And what's the takeaway for you and me in all of this? Hannah lived in a wicked time. It's the time of the judges. It's when it seemed like no one cared for God, for his word, and for living a righteous life. But here's a woman who cared about those things deeply. And God reached down and met her needs. And God strengthened her in her determined walk with God. And I read these words and I can be encouraged, can't you? By this woman who lived so long ago, an ordinary person who became extraordinary because of her simple and yet profound and deep and abiding trust in God. Now you know, she would have trusted in God even if that baby had never been born. You know that, don't you? She would have trusted in God to the very last breath she drew, but she would have had a hole in her heart till her dying day if that baby hadn't come. So the baby didn't make her a believer. She was a believer. The baby was the frosting on her cake, and God loved the party. But her faith is the model of faith we need in desperate times today. Father, thank you for the memory of this woman who lived so long ago, Hannah. Thank you for the memory of her husband, Elkanah. And even Peninnah, with all of her pettiness, we thank you that these were people who loved you at a time when many didn't. And we pray we will be a people who will love you even when many others do not. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.